0: Well, good morning to all of you. Uh, I'm going to be sharing this morning a a sermon um, which I've titled Bethel, the House of God. And I, you know, I almost put a question mark at the end of it. Um, But Bethel means house of God. And we're going to do two things here. First of all, we're going to sort of go through the history of Bethel in the Bible, and then we're going to try to draw some, um, some lessons from that. So I've been thinking a little bit about this. I've been thinking about it for a long time. So if I sound disjointed this morning, it's not because I haven't studied, it's just because I have too many thoughts in my head and they just don't really want to come out the way that they should. Um, the year was 1547, and Pope John, I'm sorry, Pope John. Pope Paul II took over the reins of the, the popedom. I don't know what you call the papacy, I guess. And um, and he had on his hands a dilemma. They were building a church It was called St. Peter's Church. And there had been a church there for a long time. Constantine had built the church there years and years ago, back in the 300s. Um, and this was... Um, uh, what, 1,200 years later, and so the church was in bad shape, and so they knocked it down and said, we're going to build something even bigger and better, um, and it'll still be called St. Peter's Church, because um, the, the whole point of this was this was supposed to be where um, Peter the Apostle was buried, and you can um, go there, and I guess they've got his bones there, or pieces of his bones, or whatever. If You have a desire to see that. Um, so, in 1506, they started work on this new church, and here 1547 came by, and there's a new pope, and the architect, who was supposed to be working on this, a man by the name of Sangalo, died. Um, people died back in those days, just like they do today, and um, often they die with their work not completed. Now, you would think, you know, building a church for 41 years, you should be pretty far along on this building, right? It seems like you should be. Um, but they weren 't they had built some big columns, and um, the first um, the first architect, a man by the name of Bramante, had a, had a plan and then the the Sangalo came along and he said, "Your plan isn 't big enough, and he built an even bigger plan, uh, which actually probably would have fallen down if they 'd actually built it but that's a, they didn 't build it so um, so the Pope went to Michelangelo. you all have heard of Michelangelo um, he was a a painter and a sculptor, and, um, and um, he was um, just a little over 70 years old. So it doesn't seem like a good task to put a 70-year-old in charge of your church building that's not going anywhere. And, um, and so Pope Paul II came to Michelangelo and said, Michelangelo, I want you to take this project over, and I want you to build this church. Um, and so Michelangelo didn't want to do it. He said, I'm old, I, I'm feeble, I can't, I can't do this. Um, and, um, and finally, Michelangelo caved in and he said, I undertake this work only for the love of God and the honor of the apostle. So, you know, he's a good Catholic and he thought, this is, this is the work that I can do that will remain behind me. I will build this church. And, um, and he didn't. He died um, 20 years later. Um, but he got it well underway. He he fixed design flaws that Sangalo had, and he did a lot of different things. And um, in the end, you can see the, the finished church. So it was finished um, another um, 60 years later, um, after his death. Um, but it's a place where um, different people visit. Around 5 million people go every year and um, And 80,000 people can stand inside St. Peter's at one time and hear the Pope talk if you want to do that. That's a big building, isn't it? Uh, Maybe he's left something behind him. And yet, if we think about what the church is, um, I I don't think that's the important thing. We know that the early church met in homes. And it wasn't until the time of Constantine that they started building bigger churches. Constantine's mother, Helena, went around... Um, and, um, and found places where wonderful things from the Bible were supposed to have happened, and then she would build churches there. So, you know, she found um, – she went to Jerusalem, and she found where she thought the, um, the um, place where Jesus was crucified was, and, or the Holy Sepulcher, and she built a church there, and just different things like that. Um, but there, before that, there weren't um, big church buildings. Often if you go into Central America, you find streets of dirt, you find people with tiny houses, and there's a big church in the middle of the, bil- of the um, village. And, um, you know, that's, um, that's maybe a, a testament to what people think is important there. But of course, you know, Mennonites would never invest that kind of money in a building. And Solomon maybe um, said it pretty well, uh, what our perspective would be whenever he was um, praying. Um, In 2 Chronicles chapter 6. So he said, But will God in very deed dwell with men on earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house which I have built. So this is at the dedication of the temple. Have respect, therefore, to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to hearken unto the cry and the prayer which thy servant prays before thee that thine eyes may be open upon this house day and night upon the place whereof thou saidest that thou wouldest put thy name there to hearken unto the prayer which thy servant prayeth toward this place. Hearken, therefore, unto the supplications of thy servant, of thy people Israel, which they shall make towards this place. Hear thou from thy dwelling place, even from heaven, and when thou hearest, forgive. I think maybe Solomon had a better idea of what The purpose of a church building was um, than a lot of people today or even in uh, Michelangelo's time. So he says a few things here, doesn't he? He says, first of all, God is too big to build in, to fit into a house. Um, The the simple concept of a house for God, I'm going to build a house for God, no matter how big you make it, you could make it as big as the universe and it's not big enough. I don't understand that. It's bigger than my mind can conceive and yet what we build for God says more about us than about God, doesn't it? The second thing is that the blessing for a building comes because God's people are meeting there. The number one thing that needs to come from God's people when they meet there is an admission of sin and request for forgiveness. So this is a different concept from modern ideas where we think that the focus is praise and worship. Um, And I think there was that that went on at the temple as well. But it began with a request for forgiveness. Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4 says, Who shall ascend into the hell of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He that has clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul to vanity nor sworn deceitfully. And when you travel to um, to Israel, you find... um, Approaching the Temple Mount, that they had um, different things that were designed to make sure that people were as clean as possible when they they went in. They had places where they could wash, not just their hands, but their heads, different things like that. Uh, Baptism wasn't a new thing when John the Baptist came along, although he took it to another step. They had really wide, shallow steps because you did not want to touch somebody who was unclean when you went into the temple because that would cause you to to lose that purity that you gained beforehand. And so this was all designed to try to make sure that you were as pure as possible when you entered the presence of God. And so this morning, I guess I would ask you, what do you think church is? Is it a place where God lives? I think probably most of us would say no. Um, Is it a club where good people go to hang out? Well, maybe... Uh, We wouldn't say it exactly that way. Uh, Is it a place where you go to meet with God? Is it a a place where you go to get emotional support? Is it the modern equivalent of the temple? Well, we're going to jump into um, the story of Bethel. So this is not the story of Bethel. I think someone's written the story of um, Bethel, Dan, at least some of it. And um, you all can read Bethel Gladys uh, version, but this is um, from the Bible. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 28. And we're going to be reading verses 10 through 22. Genesis 28. And Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. And he took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set upon the earth, and the top of it reached the heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac. The land wherein thou liest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth. And thou shalt spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee, and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest. And will bring thee again into this land, for I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. And Jacob awaked out of his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place. There is none other, this is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillars and set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of that city was called Luz at the first And Jacob vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me in the way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. And this stone, which I have set for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. So this story of Jacob takes place in a pretty disastrous time of his life. Um. Jacob and his mother had connived to get um, esau 's um, share of the inheritance so um, in in Old Testament times, whenever a father would um, die, he would leave um, he would leave his property to his children and um, the oldest would get two parts, and every other child every other son would get one part so basically um, esau 's um, wealth would be divided in three ways. And, um, and Esau should have, Isaac's wealth should have been divided in three ways. And um, Esau should have gotten two parts and Jacob one part. So um, when Jacob stole his, um, his birth, um, his, um, his um, inheritance, he got, um, he got the bigger share. And then later on, he stole his his blessing. So we know the story of that. And so he's fleeing here. Esau Esau's Esau's pretty mad at him. In fact, um, um, Jacob and his mother are pretty convinced that Esau wants to kill him. And so he left Beersheba. Beersheba was as far south in Israel as you could go. And he started traveling north. And the only thing that he knew was that he was trying to go back to Haran, which was where his his mother was from and where um, Abraham had left relatives. And it seems that he left with very little. He didn't even have a pillow along. He didn't have a sleeping bag. You know, this is not somebody who's going for a camp out, right? I mean, if you all went for a camp out um, with this kind of equipment, you'd be in bad shape. I don't, have, have any of you ever slept with a, a stone for a pillow? I think I'd rather just find some brush or something. I don't know. I can think of better things. But anyway, maybe I just had a bad neck and he had to kind of prop his head up to, to support that. Um, so he went to sleep near a place that wasn 't anything special it 's called Luz, and he, as he slept, he had a dream, and he saw a stair or a ladder going up to heaven, and God was at the top of it and Here God gave him a promise, a promise that the land would someday be his, and that he would have lots of descendants. God would go with him and bring him back. And finally, God repeated the message that had been given to Abraham, that the peoples of the earth would be blessed through Jacob's descendants. And this is clearly a, a reference to Jesus, isn't it? Another prophecy of Jesus. And yet at this moment, it seemed pretty empty to Jacob. Um, and, and we can tell because, you know, did God, did God require something of Jacob in order to, to have him uh, receive this blessing? no. Um, after this, Jacob says, well, if you'll bless me, then I'll give you 10% of everything I earn because of you. And um, I guess he did, but, uh, but God didn't ask for that. Um, the story reveals something about God. God chooses weak instruments to work with. God sees not just our present situation, but our potential. And God is faithful and the perfect one to trust our future, too. So those are three important things. They're true for Jacob, they're true for us today. We are not the strongest tools in the tool shed. Our present situation may not be perfect, and yet we can trust God with our future. Because he loves us. The story tells us more about Jacob. His initial response was one of fear. God was in this place and I did not know it. And perhaps the implication here is that he would have behaved differently if he had realized the sanctity of this location. Uh, you know, I think Jacob was a lot like one of us. You know, if, if we are going to the doctor, we, we eat healthier for at least a week or two ahead of time. It's you know, just sort of that concept. Uh, you know, and in the same way, if we know we're going to meet with God, you know, we at least put on clean underwear. There's You know, there's a concept where you want to go into God's presence, you know, at least a little respectful. Um, and Jacob had not been on his best behavior right before this event. You know, if he, he'd have waited a week to stop at Bethel if he'd known he was going to meet with God. It's not the, the sort of situation you know, where you, you've just stolen your brother's birthright and, um, and then you meet with God. And he still blesses you. Second thing is that Jacob identified this place as the gate or house of God. And this was probably an idea borrowed from the pagans in the land that God chose to live in certain locations, high places we read about. And high places were supposed to be places where it was closer to God. It was a place where um, you you could get in touch with God, where you couldn't in other places. And so Jacob offers a sacrifice. And we see his poverty, don't we? He didn't have an animal alone. He didn't have anything else to offer except just a little bit of oil, and he pours it out on the rocks that he'd use for a pillow. And then he made a bargain with God. He said, I'll serve you, and I'll give you, and I'll give you some money if you take care of me. And this shows a pretty small view of God, doesn't it? God had already promised to do the things that Jacob was asking of God. He didn't need to do these things in order to get God to take care of him. He just needed to serve God. And it's such a weird thing, isn't it, to say, you know, if you take good care of me, I'll serve you as my God. Such an odd thing to come to God. You know, does God need that? Um, And God knew Jacob. Jacob was a deceptive person. He wasn't known for telling the truth. And, and a lot of people probably viewed him as pretty worthless. And yet God saw something of value in him. So we're going to move a few chapters later, um, seven chapters actually, to Genesis chapter 35. And we're going to read the first 15 verses here. This is the return to Bethel. And God said to G- and God said unto Jacob, Arise and go to, up to Bethel and dwell there, and make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. Then Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you, and be clean and change your garments, and let us arise and go up to Bethel. And I will make there an altar unto God who answered me in the day of my distress and was with me in the way which I went. And they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand, and all their earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. And they journeyed. And the terror of God was upon the cities that were round about them. And they did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, which is in the land of Canaan, which is that is Bethel. He and all the people that were with them. And he built there an altar and called the place El Bethel. Because there God appeared unto him when he fled from the face of his brother. But De- Deborah... Rebekah's nurse died, and she was buried under Bethel, under an oak, and the name of it was called Alan bachuth And God appeared unto Jacob again when he came out to Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said unto him, Thy name is Jacob. Thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall be thy name. And he called his name Israel. And God said unto him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply, a nation And a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. And the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac to thee I will give it. And to thy seed after thee will I give the land. And God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, even a pillar of stone. And he poured a drink offering thereon, and he poured a drink offering thereon, and he poured oil thereon. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spake with him, Bethel. Maybe this feels like a repeat of the earlier passage, and yet there's more preparation here. Jacob is asked by God to go to Bethel. It's not a surprise for him, and he tells the people of his company to give up their idols and their false gods. He also told them to give up their earrings, which is kind of an odd thing. I mean, I guess Mennonites probably, you know, we can understand asking people to give up their earrings for, for God, but, um, but I don't think this was because of the jewelry aspect um, these were probably some kind of amulet, something that the, the people wore for protection from evil spirits, from diseases. There was something going on here where Jacob said, Not only do you need to get rid of false gods and make yourselves pure, but you need to give up any trappings of idolatry in order to enter into the presence of God. God will not tolerate idolatry. The location is important. So, you know, we go back and forth. And as I was studying this, you know, location isn't important, and yet location is everything. I know our tendency is to say, you know, we can worship God anywhere. And I hear people say that. You know, I worship God better when I'm fishing than when I'm in church. Um, And yet, despite this, God called Jacob back to Bethel. Jacob associated this as a place that was closer to God, and that was crucial. God can meet with us anywhere, but he tends to meet us in places where our hearts and our minds are in the right state to listen and focus on him. I'm going to say that again. God meets us in places where our hearts and minds are in the right state to listen and focus on him. And that may not be church, okay? Maybe you have trouble focusing when you're in church, and you do not get anything out of the service but you're not going to get anything more when you're fishing or golfing or doing whatever it is that you enjoy doing. And maybe some of our traditions around worship could get in the way of somebody else getting enjoyment um, or or lessons from church. Uh, But in my mind, there's still – I'm not going to talk this morning about what we should do in worship. I'm just going to be talking about what we need to do to get something out of worship, if that makes sense. I I don't, to me, that's not the important thing. Um, What? Okay. God meets us in places where our hearts and minds are in the right place to listen and focus on him. So the next thing we see here is a reaffirmation of the promise. Um, You know, you've heard the story about um, the woman who came to her husband and she said, you know, um, you you just never tell me you love me anymore. And, um, And he said, you know, I told you I loved you on our wedding day. And if it changes, I'll let you know. And God's not like that. God doesn't change. When he gives us a promise, it is fixed. We don't need to ask the question, is this promise really for me? Is this a really true thing? But God knows that we're humans and we forget. And so he tells us again. God renames Jacob here. He changes his name to Israel. Uh, His name before had been heel grabber. Now it's one who wrestles with God. Um, and I think that there's a, a need for, um, for return, um, for retreat, um, a time when we need to go back to where we were at and say, you know, what was it? And maybe that's in a location, maybe that's in a place, uh, where our heart was that we just have gotten away from. Revelation 2, 1 through 4. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that upholdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. And this is all wonderful stuff. These are doers. These are people who are working. They are at every single event that needs to be done. Every time they're singing at the nursing home, they are there and in abundance. And yet there's something more. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. And I think there's a big danger for us to focus on doing and not remember why we are doing. The Ephesians were laboring. They were theologically sound. They did not allow people who were aberrant in their midst, and yet the joy had gone out of what they were doing. And maybe this doesn't sound like a big deal. Maybe it's, you know, it's just the way things are in life. You, you start off, and you're hot, and you're ready to go, and then you just sort of... It, you're getting through your days. Um, I remember working with a doctor who was just really um, burned out. He was—he um, just was grumpy all the time, and you could tell his heart wasn't in it. Um, and I told one of the other nurses, this was in Indiana, I said to her, you know, if I ever get like that, I just need to retire. Because I have forgotten the reason why I went into medicine. The reason why I went into medicine wasn't for the money or for anything else, but because I really wanted to serve people. And I think sometimes we forget who it is that lit that fire inside of us that made us want to come to church. William Cooper was a man who suffered severe depression. Um, People don't know for sure what his psychological malady was. He he had times when he was... um, just ready to kill himself. He tried to kill himself. He didn't succeed, fortunately. Um, but he was a wonderful poet, too. And you all know the song that he wrote. Um, and there's a verse in the song. Uh, Where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? You, you know that song. And it's, One verse says, The dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, Help me, that idol, to dethrone and worship only thee. And I think the concept of losing our first love doesn't say fully what's the problem. The problem is not that we've lost our first love, but that we have started giving our love to other things, to other people. And so when we're getting back, when we're retreating, when we're going back to Bethel, We need to get rid of those idols. Whatever they are, take them off the throne. Don't bring them with you in case you might need them later. You bury them and are done with them. The next place where we see Bethel is um, that Samuel went around and um, judged people there. I'm not going to read that, um, but it's in Samuel. Um, So it just says that Bethel was still important. We're going to move forward to... The Book of Kings, First Kings twelve verses twenty six through thirty three. And Jeroboam said in his heart, "This is King Jeroboam. Now shall the kingdom return to the house of, his, of David, if this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they shall kill me and go up again to Rehoboam, king of Judah." Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. And he made an house of high places, and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah, and he offered upon the altar. So did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves which he had made, and he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the fifteenth day of the eighth month, which he had devised of his own heart and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel. And he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. We see here Jeroboam's pretty practical. He says, you know, um, if the people go up to Jerusalem and if they go to the temple and they worship God there, their hearts may change and they may, uh, they may change. And, and maybe Rehoboam will see that he wasn't, um, he wasn't in the right and he'll offer to lower their taxes and, you know, they'll just go back to him. And so Jeroboam created two places of worship, um, and he built calves there um, so that the people didn't need to travel so far. Um, Hosea 4.15 calls Bethel beth Aven, which means house of idols. Um, And we don't know what was being worshipped here. Um, It is probable, actually, that these calves were simply Jeroboam representing God. So they were worshiping Jehovah there, um, just with calves as the, you know, as the, I don't know, image that they were looking at and their own rituals around that. Um, and the reason why I say that is because, you know, when Jehu got rid of idolatry in, um, in Israel, he got rid of all the priests of Baal and he killed lots and lots of people. Um, but he left the calves, um. Clearly, they weren't viewed as part of that idolatry, at least by him. God did see them as a problem. And I'm afraid there's a real tendency for Christians to subvert subvert the true worship of God in order to build bigger churches and bigger church attendance. Um, It's not enough to worship God. We must worship him as he desires in spirit and in truth. So what was wrong with this worship? Well, first of all, it was human-centered. Jeroboam was the head of the church. Uh, We could think maybe like of um, King Henry VIII, you know, who didn't like the fact that the Pope was head of the church and wanted to be head of the church himself. Um, The second thing is that it disobeyed the second commandment about making graven images. Uh, This was not simply a command not to worship other gods. It was also a command not to make any representations of God. He's bigger, greater than anything we can imagine. It introduced the idea of worship of other gods. God is a jealous God. He does not allow the worship of other gods, and yet it was easy for people to slide from one thing into the other. And then the last thing I would say is that the words of the true prophets of God were silenced. Amos 7, 10 through 14, tells a brief story about how um, a priest named Amaziah contacted Amos and said, Stop prophesying. Why don't you go someplace else to prophesy these things? His message was not accepted by the religious people of Bethel. And a lot of modern churches lose their way. Their place is designed for comfort. The messages that are preached aren't too stressful, and Christians are told that they just need to keep on doing what they're doing, and everything will be just fine. 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 15 and 16, comes to the end of things here. Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel... And the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, both the altar and the high place, he, that is Josiah, broke down and burned the high place and stamped it small to powder, and he burned the grove. And as Josiah turned himself, he espied the sepulchers that were there in the mount, and and took the bones out of the sepulchers, and burned them upon the altar, and polluted it according to the word of the Lord which the man of God proclaimed. who proclaimed these words. And this is the end of Bethel as a place of worship. Josiah went through and had revival. He got rid of everything in Judah that was abhorrent to God, and then he went in the parts of Israel that were still maybe worshiping. Um, He he fixed those too. Um, And to me, it. It speaks of the importance of maintaining a real and vibrant place of worship. The place is important, but our hearts, when we enter there, are even more important. And so I'm going to run down through here um, the things as I was thinking about, and there's probably more things besides, but things that are needed before we enter the doors here for true worship. Okay? First thing is other people. Matthew 18.30 says, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Um, And there is such a thing as private worship, but it's important that we're with other people. Second thing is effort. Um, So when you look at the Old Testament, one of the things that Jeroboam was trying to do was to make it less effort to go worship. You don't have to travel as far. We'll put the churches closer to you. We'll, we'll make it so that you can get here pretty easily. Um, and effort is important. Sacrifice is something that, personal sacrifice, let me say it that way, is something that is really important, too. And, it's, um, and maybe this is similar to effort, but I think it's different, too. 2 Samuel 24, 24, and the king, that is King David, said unto Aruna, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. Um, and when I was a boy, I went to church. I never missed church unless I was like, had pneumonia. Um, but the effort and the sacrifice was my parents. And so how much do you think I got out of that? Not very much, I'm afraid. Um, I mean, I remember when the preacher was really interesting and had a story or two to tell. But I don't remember a whole lot of of services when I was was a boy. And I've got a decent memory. I remember other things, but not so much that. We need to be willing to sacrifice when we come in the door. Um, Heart preparation. Um, I've already read... That passage from the Psalms, it talks about pure hands, pure heart. Uh, but there were a couple of verses in Matthew chapter 5 that just really spoke to me. Therefore, if thou get, bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. What order should things happen in? To me, it's a, you know, I said, well, you know, I'll I'll go take care of things after church. And yet, Jesus is saying the most important thing is reconciliation. The most important thing is peace. The most important thing is that your heart is in the right place to actually receive the word of God. Relationship with my brother is more important than singing beautifully in church. The last thing is God focus. Um, Hebrews 13:1 and twos or 121 and twos talks about looking into Jesus. Um, and who are we focusing on this morning? I hope you're not focusing on me. I'm not a very good person to focus on. Um, lessons from the story of Bethel. So we're going to hit a few things that, that I hope that we can see in this story. First of all, God does choose particular places to reveal himself to His people. Um, Our tendency is to say, you know, God's big enough, he can show himself anywhere, and he can. But we know in Scripture that he doesn't do this. He took Moses and Elijah to the Mount of God, to Mount Sinai, um, or it's called Mount Toreb in some places. He took Jacob to Bethel. And and for us, he's taking us here this morning. I, I think you're here for a reason. And he may take you to another place. But his goal is to get you in a place where he can talk directly to you, to me, without distraction. The second thing is that sometimes we need to go back to places where we were before to recapture our communion with God. Our relationship with God is more important than anything else. Um, Our souls are more important than anything else. I I was thinking about this this morning. Um, I had a patient who came in, and he was talking to me about, um, about alcohol problem, and I said, "Are you ready to give it up?" And he said, "No." And I said, "You know, you're killing yourself." And he said, "Well, guess I'm not worth much anyway." And that was it. He wasn't. He wasn't ready. And so when most people weigh things, they say, "You know, is it worth it to me to be healthy, or is it worth it more to..." you know, eat this thing or whatever, and they don't think about it that way. We value everything in our life, and we need to rebalance that. It is more important to walk with God than anything else, and it's okay to backtrack if it helps us to rekindle a flame that is burning at low ebb. Losing your first love is a sin and needs to be repented of. Third thing is that even very good things can be corrupted if there's no effort made to maintain them. And I don't always know what happens with these things. I was listening to a podcast talking about um, the story of Mars Hill. It's the story of a, a church out on the West Coast. So you had really wonderful things going, and then suddenly everything sort of fell apart overnight. Um, it turns out that um, there was a, a pastor named Mark Driscoll who – Um, had major issues. It wasn't morality issues, but he was just really not easy to get along with, and he started, um, yeah, being not what he should have been, we'll say. And I'm afraid that, um, you know, Mennonite churches aren't perfect either. And if we don't make the effort, what we are doing here can be corrupted too. And the last thing is sometimes we just need to knock things down and begin again. It's not our nature to do this. Our our human tendency is just to try to fix up stuff. We just want to fix it up and go uh, with what we already have. Um, And maybe that's cheaper, but in our lives, sometimes we just have to knock it down. Say, you know, this is built on faulty foundation. There's no way I can really shore this up. I need to knock it down and start afresh. And listen to what God wants me to build. So I was thinking about the churches in Revelation. um, And I believe that the American church has moved way past the church at Ephesus where they've got good theology and good works and they just kind of lost their first love. And they're living somewhere around Laodicea where they are wealthy and comfortable and completely disconnected from God. We Christians are very good at building comfortable places where we aren't stressed out. And we're called to worship God. Jesus told the woman of Samaria that he met at the well, that the Jews were worshiping God in the right place. But he went on to say that the time was coming when those who worship would worship in spirit and in truth. Location is and isn't important. The most important thing is that our hearts are pure before him. And I guess I would finish just asking you to think on a few questions. What needs to change at Bethel so that when people come here, they go away saying God was in this place and I did not know it. I wish I prepared better because that was the hand of God there this morning. Do we see our church as a connection to the church of Ephesus or even worse, Laodicea? And how can we change that? How can we bring life into our group and a real focus on God? Wherever we are today, we can do better. We can focus more on God. We can make Bethel the house of God, not because of us, but because of the greatness of the God we are serving.